Guys, we're continuing on in this series called When Sinners Say I Do. It's the series on marriage, but I've already done the work of trying to convince all of you it is for all of you, um, so I don't feel like I have to do that again today. Uh, because week one, we talked about uh, the pattern and the power for your marriage is what? And the word starts with a G? It's the gospel. It's the picture. It's the image. It's the work of the gospel, the pattern, the power for your marriage. The second week, we talked about what it looks like when two sinners become one flesh. We talked about uh, what one flesh meant, what it means, how it looks. And uh, I did give a disclaimer last week uh, about the nature of that. So I'm going to get, again, if you're going to go tune that in, it is, be careful with quiet listening ears, right? Young ears don't need to hear most of, or a part of that sermon. I will say that even though I gave that disclaimer, I still got a complaint from a parent who said, my child's so hurt. I said, I gave the disclaimer. Just, I did my job. Why didn't you do yours? Right? Anyways, it was good. They had a great conversation. Today's topic, I want to introduce to you with an article that I came across uh, from the Reader's Digest. It's about a speaker who is giving a lecture at a woman's club, and the topic of her lecture was marriage itself. And, and so as part of her speech, one of the ways she opened it was, uh, she asked the, all the women in the audience, she said, how many of you want to mother your husbands? And to her surprise, way in the back, there was a hand that went up. Some lady confirmed, yeah. And so she, you, what, you want to mother your husband? And the lady replied, huh, mother? No, I thought you said smother. <laughs> now, I am not advocating for any use of physical abuse. But women, how many of you ever wanted to smother your husband? <laughs> See, this is something that I think is a bit inevitable in marriage. Last week, we described marriage as a fusing of two individuals into one flesh, and we looked at alloyed metals and how they become one, and we talked about steel and, and how steel becomes steel. We take iron and carbon, and you fuse them in this fiery furnace, and marriage is just like that furnace. It's this fusing of two souls into one soul, the mingling of souls per se. And, and it's this hot process, not just because you read Song of Solomon together, but it's this hot process and sparks will fly because there's this collision that happens. And I think many of you know what those collisions feel like and the division that can be experienced with your spouse after a collision. You know, I, um, have y'all, do y'all recognize the praise song called, Is He Worthy? Yeah. Um, the author of that song named Andrew Peterson, 13 years ago, wrote a song for his wife in celebration of their marriage, and he called it Dancing on the Minefields. And the chorus is just like, so we're dancing on the minefields, we're sailing in the storms. And he keeps going, he says, it's harder than we dreamed, but I believe that's what the promise is for. Guys, you, everything got somber. He's like, yeah, marriage is very much like dancing on minefields. You take one step, something happens, and there's this miniature explosion that leads to injury. Or you're out on a beautiful sea and you see the storm billows coming in and you brace 
Marriage has its storms. Marriage has its minds. And what's the first inclination of our hearts when we step on one of those miniature explosions? We, we, we want to first do the work of passing all of our guilt onto our spouse. We want to blame them. Or uh, we do an even worse thing. We just blame our marriage as a whole. We just say our marriage is this. Like we talk about that all the time. Like the way that we talk about our marriages is kind of sickening in some ways. When we say, yeah, my marriage is having problems. Right? Like I'm having marriage issues as if as if marriage was a vehicle that was just malfunctioning in your garage. My marriage is having a problem. It's malfunctioning in some way. It's strange enough to blame your spouse for what I'm hoping to convince you of today is your own flaws and and bad habits. But it's also even more strange to just blame your marriage as if it's some objective third-party thing. Guys, locating the source... Being able to identify the source of your marriage problems in your marriage is absolutely vital for flourishing, for growth. Now, for this morning, I'm going to use the word when you get like in a fight, right? And I don't in any way mean anything physical. I mean conflict. I mean there's a disagreement between the two of you. It's not a playground brawl. It's more adult than that. How many of you are willing to admit that you don't have a perfect marriage? If you don't have a marriage, you can raise your hand because you're in love with Jesus. You have a perfect marriage there. It's even safer. This, in fact, it, the church... This, this hospital for sinners ought to be the safest place for us to be able to say, yeah, actually, I get in disagreements that are a bit heated with my spouse at times. And I, I'm, I'm willing to admit that. And I think that we all should safely be willing to admit that as well. Uh, if you aren't uh, experiencing any fights at any time in your marriage, then, then I would just ask, are you all even living together? <laughs> Here's the thing, when we talk about fights, when we talk about conflict in in our marriage, we typically view them as uh, like a a boxing match or a UFC fight, and and you have these two parties that are colliding with one another, and and in our marriage, we have these fights, and our typical understanding, unfortunately, I think it's wrong, when we get in these fights, and we try to find the break, and the bell rings... And you go back to your corner, you and your spouse don't go to two separate corners. You and your spouse are always on the same team together. You go back to the same corner. Because when you get in conflict, when you get in a fight in your marriage, you're not fighting your spouse, you're fighting with your spouse against a force that's lurking in that ring. It is always you and your spouse together to the end. When you're in conflict, easiest thing is to say it's me versus them. The hardest but the most gospelicious thing you can say, it's her and I against the world. It's you and me, ride or die. Whatever's in here, whatever's in the ring, it's you and me versus it. 
we will take it out and we will enjoy our marriage more. So today we are going to do the hard, hard work of identifying those things that seem to be lurking in the rings. The little, little monsters or whatever sneaking through the shadows of your marriage. Those things that seem to be trying to gnaw and bite at you and, and destroy the marriage intimacy that you so experience, that you ought to be experiencing with one another. We're going we're gonna to identify those things today, and we're going to look at the Song of Solomon to do that. Now, I want to introduce this book to you. Uh, some of you uh, maybe this is one of the first times you've ever heard anything like this from God's Word. Uh, maybe you had no clue there was something so warm and intimate between a husband and a wife recorded in Scripture, and we ended it with, this is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's an incredible book. In fact, your, book, your Bible might actually call it Song of Solomon, but the first verse in chapter 1, verse 1, is the Song of Songs, which is of Solomon. In other words, you know the phrase that we say, King of Kings and Lord of Lords? It's the same idea. This is the song of songs. It's the best. It's the highest. Now, there's some debate, a lot of debate as to the nature of this book. Is there a marriage at some point? Were they courting? Whatever. We're just going to say this couple, they're married, right? Throughout, they're enjoying some things throughout. But guess who's not the main figure here? Solomon. He, he, may have, he may have authored this, or he may have overseen the authorship of this, but he didn't, he didn't, he's not actually the main feature. He's mentioned in this book uh, as a third party. He's mentioned as a distant figure. He's not the man. In fact, there's a part in here where you hear the woman call her husband a king, and you might think, oh, well, that's Solomon. No, my bride, my wife, she's the queen. That, that's the term of endearment. So we have this book. The main two characters are a young man. And in chapter 1, verse 7, we find out this young man, he's a shepherd. And in the next verse, we find this young woman, who's another main character. They love one another. She's a shepherdess. He's got a flock of sheep. She's got a flock of goats. And they're intimately in love with one another. They, they have great concern and covenant love for each other. And this whole book... Song of Songs is this coherent collection of love poetry. One calling to the other. Speaking face to face with one another, which is why Dave and Debbie did such an awesome job sharing this with us. Now, I've already mentioned that there's like a wide variety of how to interpret this whole book, when the marriage happened, if there was a marriage, or if it was already before all this. We're just going to say that they are enjoying things that the marriage relationship should enjoy, so I think throughout the book we'll just assume that they're married. Now, here's what's funny. Um, a lot of people uh, avoid this book because it's too hard to interpret. Um, I want to challenge you husbands and wives, I dare you. There's eight chapters. Read a chapter a night with your spouse. Take the parts and read it to one another. Uh, if you want to <laughs> spice things up a bit, keep, keep going, right? There's all sorts of good things in this book. Um, husbands, I want you to lead the way on that if you would. Do something like Dave and Debbie did. There's some strange, 
even words of romance in this book that uh, might be confusing to you. In fact, if you say them to your spouse, it might sound like an insult. Like, for example, your neck is like a tower. Like, I, I don't know if we want long necks. Um, or, or there's another romantic saying that says, like, uh, your teeth are like sheeps coming down, right? They, the, the, there, there's not a one of the flock that's missing. In other words, you, you've got all your teeth, <laughs> right? So it's just, there's, yeah, I mean, praise the Lord, my wife has all her teeth, right? But I'll tell you what, I, I uh, uh, in introducing, there's this understanding of the whole world looking in on the Christian church saying that we don't know romance, that we don't know intimacy. We've got a God who's included it in his word, and that's actually what we're to be best at, right? We're to be really good because it's a holy kind of romance and love. It's not selfish. In fact, I, uh, in college, was a prayer leader on my dorm, and we had a conversation with some of the guys on the dorm, and they were just like, God doesn't, uh, he's like, I'm gonna, is there any kids in here? Okay, the thing that couples enjoy in marriage, right? That's not something God like gave. It's just uh, that's broken. It's like no. So I started reading Song of Solomon to them on the dorm, and these dudes were giggling like they were in fifth grade again. <laughs> like it was insane. So so I would encourage you read through it. Definitely take your time to read through it. But but we're in this passage. We started in chapter one at the end with verse fifteen, and we kept going into. Uh, chapter 2, and we, we see that the young man and the young woman, they're calling back and forth to one another, this beautiful dance of romance. In verse 15, we see this man just flat out, you are beautiful, my darling. How very beautiful you are. Your eyes are doves. And then the woman calls back, how handsome you are, my love. How delightful I mean, we're, we're talking about romance here. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like you have physically passed the age where you feel like beauty has fled, if you have a relationship with Jesus, there's a beauty about you regardless of how you feel about your physical appearance that your husband will find amazingly attractive. No matter where you are in life. For men, I think we're just hopeless. We're just going to, anyways, good luck, women, finding us attractive. But they keep building up this intimacy, calling back and forth. Look at verse 13 and 14 in chapter 2. The man says, no, he invites her to come away. Come away with me, my beautiful one. Let, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice because your voice is so sweet and your face is so lovely. So this romance is building, and it's just, it's almost breathtaking. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this random pause in the romance. And your Bible might not have it as switching to the woman. Uh, your Bible might have it. There's some debate as to whether or not this is the woman saying it or the man. Uh, the CSB has it as the woman saying it, so I'm just going to go with that. The woman in their romance, pauses and says to her husband, verse 15, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that ruin the vineyard. For our vineyards are in bloom. So the context 
if we can just simply keep it simple. The context appears to be a discussion. This is a discussion that we're going to be having about the intimacy in their marriage, their relationship, their romance. In fact, you would even say, I could even say that the vineyard itself is the intimacy in their marriage. It's the season of it. In fact, I would almost argue that right now that he's inviting her to come away with him because they're now married. Like the the winter is past, the rain is gone. In other words, the things that have kept us apart, we're now able to be in season of bloom. We're now able to to, uh, enjoy intimacy with one another. And so we have this vineyard that's blooming. And it's their intimacy, it's their relational um, love and covenant to one another. They can be together. And so come away with me, he says. Which means, verse 15 is telling us that your intimacy with your spouse is so much like a vineyard. It's so much like a vineyard, isn't it? it? It takes so much work. It takes you paying attention to it. It takes you investing in and sowing seeds in. It takes you watering and caring for it. You, you know that well. When you're not intentional about enjoying and being intimate and leading the way in intimacy with your spouse. And again, I'm not just talking about sexual. I'm talking about just relational. If you're not in sowing seeds, if you're not investing, if you're not intentionally doing things, the vineyard won't flourish or grow. So we have this vineyard. It takes work. It takes sowing. It takes watering and care. But there's something else it takes. It takes guarding. In fact, I would even say it takes some hunting. Because there's this threat to the vineyard in your marriage. There's a lurking threat in the ring, per se. Scripture here, Solomon, refers to them as foxes. Now, foxes, we view them as red-tailed, right? Furry little cute things, right? Um, Probably better translated in Scripture as jackals. Jackals are actually creatures similar to foxes, but they're indigenous to the Mediterranean, Africa, and Eurasia. We think foxes are cute and cuddly. Jackals just sound disgusting. Um, And jackals will tear foxes apart for breakfast. But for the sake of the text and the ease of the morning, I'm just going to refer to them as foxes, but just think jackals as well. They're the same creature throughout Scripture, per se, the same Hebrew word. Now, when we think about foxes or jackals, right, do you know what sound they make? Yeah, we have our generation's song that wonders what foxes sound they make, and and it comes up with some absurd ones. We ask ourselves what the fox says. I'm not going to do it. It's already been done. Thank you. Uh, one one night, uh, we used to live in in rural Pennsylvania, Northeast PA, and. Um, uh, we had our windows down one late summer evening, and um, I'm sitting in the living room, and all of a sudden, uh, from not too far away outside, I, I hear what sounded like screaming uh, from a, a teenage young girl, screaming. 
Now, uh, I'm the kind of guy who, when I hear that, I go grab a few tools that go bang <laughs> and, 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 and go see if I can be a hero. Now, we, I, I went out looking for what the noise was. I could not find it. We have this long, dark road down in front of our house, the parsonage we stayed in, and there was no lighting, so I, I, I didn't see anything. So I think I actually asked Kenny Chappelle's dad, which, by the way, I used to pastor the church that his dad goes to in PA, and I asked him, I heard this noise last night. It sounded like this, and I'm not going to do it because it's terrifying. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's a fox. I said, that was no fox. Foxes are cute and cuddly. He's like, no, 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 that was a fox. It is the most terrifying sound you'll ever hear. If you want to go look it up on YouTube, you can do that after the service, okay? <laughs> Their bark is terrifying. It sounds like kid, a, a, a kid screaming. But I will tell you that the damage they can do is even more terrifying, right? Scripture pictures foxes as creatures of destruction. It pictures jackals as creatures of ruin. So, for example, in Judges 15, Samson, you know the story, he takes 300 of these foxes, he takes pears, and he ties their tails together, he puts a torch in them, all of them, he lights them all and sets them out into the Philistines' uh, a grain fields and their vineyards and sets them all on fire. Foxes, agents of destruction. We see in Nehemiah 4, when Nehemiah is leading Israel to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and uh, we have Sanballat and, 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 to, uh, and another guy who are, who are making fun of the wall and what they're doing. They say if a fox landed on that or walked on that, it would crumble. An agent of destruction. Now, obviously, a light fox, but again. And then we see in Ezekiel 13... God calls false prophets among Israel like foxes or jackals among ruins. Right? Foxes are just, in Scripture, they're seen as destruction. They're seen as ruins. They're seen as agents of chaos and disorder. And they're not very big creatures, are they? They're very kind of small, right? And, and they're sly and they're sneaky and quick. They, they, they usually come out at night when you can't see them, and you actually only usually find out that they're there once you find the damage that they've done. Exactly. Now, foxes, we're, we're told uh, that, that they are notorious in the ancient world for just totally destroying vineyards. In, so, in fact, some ancient sources suggest that foxes are really fond of grapes. In a vineyard, you grow grapes. And here we see the vineyard is blooming. Solomon knows the beauty of a blooming vineyard in a marriage relationship. And he also knows that it's susceptible to destructive little foxes that can sneak in without our even noticing them. Now, these foxes come in a few different breeds. I want to talk about two this morning. Two breeds of foxes that seem to try to infiltrate your marriage, the vineyard of it. Now, I'm going to let the first, I mean, the first one is simple and easy enough. It comes from Scripture. The second breed, I think, comes a bit more from experience, personally, 
And so I, I want to make sure I preface this with that. I'm not actually going to a passage and saying, these are the two breeds of foxes that God try to get into your marriage. I'm elaborating on a principle here. And the first one that we all too easily know, the first breed of foxes is, is sin. Can you say sin? Sin. Guys, so succinct, so somber. Guys, when we have two sinners who are saved by God's great grace, who are now saints, they're still sinful. They still sin. We talked about that in week one. As there are details in the marriage relationship, issues that we learn our whole lives about, trying to navigate and resolve. Every new season of your marriage introduces new complexities to navigate together, right? You have communication problems. You have role responsibilities, finances. You have sexual intimacy. You have children. You have in-laws, right? Aging parents. You have all these different sort of new seasons and potential conflicts that can come with them. And guess what? They don't always come naturally to solve it. It doesn't come naturally to fix these things in the marriage relationship. And so what first may seem as a small little thing can blow up into this massive ordeal over a longer period of time. Little foxes love to come in and ruin the vineyards with things like bitterness and criticism and jealousy and neglect. And at the core of it all, it's just this matter of sin. As I think I've shared this a few times. Sin isn't just something you do. It's, it's a spiritual force as well. Scripture says it still lingers in the members of our body. And that's why James 4 says this, and it's very serious. In fact, you can probably contextualize this to your marriage. What is the source of wars and fights among you two? Don't they come from your passions, your sinful lusts that wage war within you? Sin, unfortunately, still lurks in the ring. It lurks in the shadows of your own hearts. And it's constantly inviting you in to do the things that you know you shouldn't do and inviting you to not do the things that you know you should do. Guys, and men first. Are you struggling with the sin of laziness? Or sleepfulness? or addiction, or complacency, or idolatry. You might think you have everything together, but do you know that the greatest threat to your marriage and your children is you? An unsanctified you, if you're not pursuing Christ? The greatest danger to a wife and a family is a hot-tempered man. An uncontrolled man, a childish man, an idolatrous man, a lazy man. It's the greatest threat to your family. It's your own sin. Now, just to continue to press in deep for the men, I'm not going to have it up on the screen, but there's a passage in Proverbs 24 where the author, he says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, 
In other words, he found a man who's lazy and he's foolish. And he walked by this man's fields and his vineyards. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Men, your struggles with screen time, your struggles with pornography, your struggles with greed and lust are the greatest threat to your own marriage. Now, I think, um, just to be fair, we should also uh, bring up women. Lord, help me. Ladies, do you have a proneness to want to fight and quarrel and nitpick? Do you have a, a need to always be right? Now, this isn't just unique to women. I know men who struggle with these things. In fact, I know women who struggle with the things I mentioned for men. Proneness to fight, quarrelsomeness, nagging, those are hard issues within you, not, not problems with your spouse. In fact, I, I say this, there's, there's proverbs that say it's, it's better for the man to go live up on the roof of his house than to live in the house with a quarrelsome wife. Good men, thank you for not saying amen to that. <laughs> he says it elsewhere. It's better for a man to go live out in a desert and almost die of thirst than to live in the house with a quarrelsome wife or a nagging wife. Now, I'm using these as simple wisdom illustrations your sin is one of the greatest threats to your marriage, to the vineyard. It is a fox that needs to be caught. Guys, don't you believe what Paul says in Galatians? You really do weep the things that you sow. You sow laziness into your life, you reap poverty. You sow lust into your life, you reap broken marriages. You really do sow what you weep. Thank you. You really do reap what you sow. And guys, I'm not just talking about these forces that are within you. Guys, there's enough temptations out there. There are tons of forces out there that are holding up foxes and say, hey, I want to let this into your marriage. I want to let this one into your, your, your vineyard. These forces aren't just within you. There are all sorts of things out there. Uh, I mean, when you t I mean, anybody who, I mean, obviously, movies don't really help with real pictures of love, but affairs, right? Somebody else has ought to be involved in that. Our world's obsession with materialism, with, with wealth, and believing that's where happiness lies. That's going to constantly be a fox that's trying to be let into your marriage. Sin is one of the first 
breeds and the main breeds of foxes trying to get into your marriage, get into the vineyard, and destroy all the fruit. And then there's this second breed of fox that's trying to get in. And it's unmet expectations. Can you say unmet expectations? Unmet. Guys, I, I have a saying that I think you need to memorize, apart from God's word, of course. The source of all conflict in your marriage is unmet expectations. The root of all conflict is unmet expectations. When your expectations, what you're believing should happen, isn't met, it creates tension. And guess what? You each came into your marriage relationship toting a massive bag of expectations for how life should be that you take out and, and compare with one another and you find out, wow, we don't have a lot that match, right? And deep in every quarrel, every fight, every disagreement and argument, somewhere in the rubble of that chaos and destruction, you will find an unmet expectation every time. Shall I elaborate? How to clean the toilet? How to cook spaghetti, whether or not you put salt in the water? When, when the curtains should be opened and closed during the day? If you should have dessert after lunch? Who, who's responsible for the dishes or the dog? Right? How, how should the dishes be organized in the dishwasher? How, how, could a, how should the car be parked out in the driveway? How to drive? Right? My wife hates driving with me in the car because all I turn into is this backseat driver and it annoys her so bad. Because I have a list of expectations for how to drive, and she has a list of expectations for how she should drive. Everything that I've mentioned, and so much more, are these moral issues. In other words, are these matters of righteousness, right or wrong? Uh-uh. Nope. How you put the dishes in the dishwasher isn't commanded in the Old Testament. <laughs> and yet, the reason why we're in conflict in our marriage is, is because we are treating our expectation as a moral right or wrong. And we criticize the other. We hold a grudge against the other instead of showing grace. Unmet expectations are the root or the source of tons of your conflicts, I promise you. Guys, these foxes are dangerous. And in some cases, they can be deadly to a vineyard. 
and the cause of your marriage struggles, the battles in your marriage, the fruitlessness of the vineyard in your marriage isn't because it's the marriage's fault. And I'm going to go so far and just humbly say, and it's not your spouse's fault either. Are they sinful? Yes. Do they contribute terribly to the relationship? Yes. But Scripture doesn't start with them. It starts with you. It's, it's the foxes of sin or unmixed expectations that we've kind of just let infiltrate our marriage relationships. And ignoring these foxes, letting them lie, thinking that they're just going to go away and resolve themselves actually only encourages them to multiply themselves. And every effort you make to try to invest into the vineyard and grow fruit will only be consumed by foxes that aren't addressed. You have to recognize from the very start of this all that the health and the success of your marriage is actually bound up in the very little things of life. Not just these big, massive moments. And so we have these foxes that are threats to the vineyard. And they're dangerous. We have sin. We have unmet expectations. And and I'm sure there's a few others that we can explore. And these foxes are dangerous. And what are we to do with them? What does the wife look to her husband? What does the woman look to her man and say, catch them. Go hunt for them. Let us, let us catch them together. There's this imperative here, this, this, this massive implication that we need to catch these foxes before they ruin the vineyard because our vineyard is blooming and it's so sensitive. And there's so much beauty there. Catch them quickly. Be aggressive about it. They're hostiles behind enemy lines. Is the idea. And so I want to kind of use the next few minutes to coach us on how to catch and kill some foxes. How to go fox hunting when the foxes have entered your vineyard. Now, I've got three steps, but before you can get to these three steps and do them with any kind of sanity in your mind, there's one that precurses all of them. And the first thing is, cool off. Take some time to cool off. I know some of you, how many of you in the marriage relationship are the one who wants to like fix it now? We're going to have this conversation no matter how heated we are. You would say that? How many of you would say, no, I need some time. I need some break. I want to think about things. I want to, can we, yeah, you would say that, right? And guess what? You're married together, right? (laughs) You married somebody who's different from you. So offer grace. And the wisdom here is to cool off. Scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Look at Ephesians 4, actually. It's, it says this. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. There's, a, there's a, a, a correlation there. If you do let the sun go down on your anger, you do give the devil an opportunity to spoil yet another day. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. But here's the thing. We think that that means that we have to resolve the conflict issue at hand before nightfall, before we go to bed. Scripture doesn't say, don't let the sun go down on your conflict. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You might not have it resolved. You might not have things figured out. It might take a really long conversation. 
But if you agree to this, if you and your spouse agree to this, before bed, you, you, you have some pillow time, you look at one another and you say, hey, I know we haven't resolved our conflict, but my anger, I'm letting it go. I love you too much and I want to I rest with you tonight in peace. We'll wake up tomorrow and we will kill this fox together. I love you. I can tell you firsthand that if you don't do this, it does give the devil a foothold. I can tell you firsthand, it was just a few weeks ago, I let what I thought was justified anger go on for two or three days and it kept my wife at an arm's length. I thought I was justified and I wasn't. It was me wanting my anger more than my spouse and that is wretched. Don't neglect this counsel. Better yet, don't disobey this command. The sun is setting. You get through your anger and you recommit your love to them and then you fall asleep and you come ready the next day to talk through things. Once you have cooled down, the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to suspect. Can you say suspect? suspect. You need to choose the right one. You need to, to pick who's the suspect here. And guess what I'm going to counsel you to do? Pick yourself. Always. Always check yourself first. G.K. Chesterton, Chester, Chester, Chesterton, Chesterton, there it is, G.K. Chesterton. He, uh, there was an article that had been printed in the newspaper asking the question, what is what is wrong with the world? And it gave all of its readers the ability to write in and respond. G.K. Chesterton wrote back two words. I am. What's wrong with the world? Me. I'll start with me. I'm going to examine me. I'm responsible for me. Guys, in every conflict, no matter how imbalanced it may feel, like it's totally their fault, you start with suspecting yourself first, every time. What do you think Jesus meant when he said this? And I've contextualized it to the marriage relationship. Why do you look at the splinter in your wife's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your husband, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your spouse's eye. You start with you. You are accountable to God for you first. Start with owning up to all of your own stuff and dealing with everything that's within you. Even if it seems like you did nothing wrong. I promise you, most, like 90% of marriage conflicts, both the husband and the wife have contributed to create. There's something that's a more modern term that's called gaslighting. Gaslighting is when you pass the guilt off of you onto someone else using emotional abuse strategies. Making everything your spouse's fault 
is a form of abuse in today's psychological world. It's emotional, mental abuse. It destabilizes the victim's belief in themselves. Guys, there have been times where in my marriage I have gaslighted my wife, where I have taken an issue and put it on her even though clearly I'm the one. Those who aren't aware of that, what they're doing and seem to just do it in all their relationships, you know what they're called? Narcissists. Now, I'm, I'm, you cannot own up to what isn't yours. I'm not saying that. But you better own up to everything that is. Holy Spirit is available and able to convict you of all wrongdoing. Develop your relationship with him. Get sensitive to him. Now, I also want to just carefully add the subtext under this one. Very rarely, but sometimes, there are conflicts in a marriage. And the reality is, one person is completely at fault. Affairs, addictions, abuse. And that's a different counsel for a different day. Most of your marriage relationships now start looking at yourself, suspect yourself first. And then the second step in this process is to inspect. So you suspect and then you? Inspect. You need to inspect the fox that you've found. You need to figure out what kind of breed it is. Is it a matter of sin? Is it a moral issue? Is it disobedience to God's commands? Is it idolatry? Is it failure to do the good that you know you ought to do, but don't do it? Is it in that category? Is it that breed of fox? Or is it an unmet expectation? Something that isn't sinful and you thought should be. Right? Is it an unmet expectation where you're expecting something of your spouse and it wasn't met? Not a right or wrong issue. Even if it was something that you already pre-agreed on. You need to inspect these foxes that you catch. Figure out if it's sin or if it's unmet expectations. Because that's going to determine how you move forward into this third step. Because if it's sin, you confess it. That didn't work out. Sorry. If sin, you confess. If it's unmet expectations, you compromise. So in either way, at the third step, you're confessing your own sin, not the sin of your spouse, or you're compromising on your unmet expectation. In other words, you're showing mercy and grace. If it is sin, you own up to it. And what a safer place to do that in a gospel-centered marriage where forgiveness has been experienced by both from their creator. You confess to your God and confess to your spouse what was wrong, that it was wrong, and all the consequences that came out of that wrong. Confess your sins. And here's why it's so important, because cleansing is accompanied with confession. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want to have the fox killed, you have to confess it first. It 
if it's an unmet expectation, make the conscious choice to compromise. In other words, show mercy, right? If you're expecting your family car to be kept to a certain degree of cleanliness, compromise that expectation. Because we're not compromising God's commands. We're compromising your commands. And you're not God. So choose to show mercy. Choose to to confess. Choose to compromise. But you have to start with catching the foxes first. You start with the suspect is you inspecting the, the breed of the fox and then confessing or compromising. So y'all know opening day of hunting season, what that sounds like on a, on a, on a Thursday or Friday morning, right? Guns going off everywhere through the valley. I better hear guns going off everywhere through our church as couples put to death foxes that have been lingering too long. Go hunting together, owning up to your own first. Now, some of you, some of you would look at the vineyard of your marriage relationship and not see anything in bloom that's worth saving. I don't know if that's you. You're looking at your marriage relationship and the vineyard is not in bloom. You know the vineyard has been sown, but it's just not growing anything. In fact, your vineyard looks less like a vineyard and more like a war zone. Every time you come home, you feel like you've got to duck and dodge bullets of accusations and criticisms that are fired your way. And you feel like the only safe thing to do is to fire back your own accusations and criticisms in the hopes of saving yourself. Maybe you've neglected the vineyard long enough. As I have this saying, when's the best time to plant a vineyard? 20 years ago. But if you missed that, when's the second best time? Right now. You don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be ridden with guilt for letting intimacy in your marriage relationship, no matter how long your marriage has, by God's grace, lasted. Today can be the day where you start sowing seeds again. You start watering things, caring for the vineyard. Now, others of you, you've been working hard. You have a marriage that is in bloom. And yet there are foxes that you've neglected. Foxes, you've seen the damage they've done and you've not addressed them. I want to remind you that no matter how many foxes there are, God has a plan to sanctify your marriage wholly. He started that work. He will promise to complete it. And he wants your cooperation. He invites you into partnership in his fox hunting. No marriage 
No person is ever too far gone from God's redeeming, healing, fox-killing grace. So husband and wife, the two of you today, will you commit to let no safe quarters for any foxes to be found in your marriage? Even if that commitment is one-sided. Some of you might have spouses that want very little to nothing to do with Jesus, care very little about being sanctified or growing up in Christ's grace. All I can ask for you is to love them like Christ loves the church. Unconditionally, undeservedly, and get to killing your own foxes, whatever you have control over. But today can be the day. Now, I told you every week that I was going to try to resource whoever I can with resources for their marriage. And this is a book called Love Busters by Willard F. Harley Jr. Protecting Your Marriage from Habits That Destroy Romantic Love. If you've got some foxes to kill and you want to know better how to kill them, I recommend this book. In fact, if there's a couple here that would commit to reading through this, I'll give this to you right now. Now, again, by you raising your hand, you're going to admit what everybody knows about your marriage already. You've got problems. And if somebody wants it, if, if nobody wants to raise their hand right now, you can just come up and grab it after. And if it's gone, great. Let me pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, I, I praise you that we are works in progress. I praise you that you are actively involved in our lives and that you have committed yourself to seeing us to completion, to seeing us to fulfillment. And yet, Lord, we can be so drowned by how far we have to go because we know how holy you are. We know how perfect you are in all of your ways and in your love for us. And we want to emulate it. We want to show our spouses this kind of love that we've known. So God, I just pray simply that we would not be overwhelmed with how far we have to go, but that we would be committed to just the next right step, what the next right thing is. And God, if there's marriage relationships here this morning that have uh, lingering conflict, foxes that have made their nests and their homes in the vineyard, and they've burrowed deep, I pray in Jesus' name that you would send a bunker-busting missile into that bunker this morning. Loosen up the soil, dig that fox out, and kill it. I pray, Jesus, that both husbands and wives today would take ownership of themselves as the primary suspect of problems in their marriage. I pray, Jesus, that you would help them by your Spirit inspect the nature of the fox that they find. If it's sin, 
may they remember the gospel that it has no longer any power over them, that it has been crucified on the cross, and that they have been forgiven and are being cleansed. If it's unmet expectations, God, I pray that you would humble us from the pride that exalts our expectations to right or wrong issues. God, please, that has been the, 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 the greatest turmoil in my marriage to my beautiful bride. It's my unmet expectations. And all I do is criticize. God, forgive me. And I pray, Jesus, that we would all be willing to compromise, that we would be willing to put away our anger in pursuit of our spouses, that we want them more than anything else because they are the greatest gift this side of heaven that we've ever known apart from Christ, apart from saving grace. So God, please may today be the day you begin to heal marriages and cause them to bloom. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.